Grab your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. I believe this is a very important chapter, and I'll explain why as we go. It's also a very hard chapter to read in some ways for me, uh, because Jesus has to use some very strong language in this chapter. Uh, But we just finished witnessing a public debate, a huge controversy or confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. They were asking him all these questions, doing everything they could to trip him up. How can we make him make a mistake? How can we make him say something that will get him in trouble? Because they have decided they have to destroy this guy. They have to get rid of this guy. Well, Jesus turns from that debate. Basically, he's answered all their questions, shocked them. Then he asked them a question, which they couldn't answer, and after which they no longer had any uh, energy in themselves to ask any more. He turns from, from that debate and he turns to the crowds and to his disciples to warn them about false religion, to warn them about false religious leaders. And he warns them very, very strongly. Many say that all religions are the same. They say that religion is like a giant mountain with heaven at the top, and there are all these different roads that go up the side of the mountain, and they all lead to the same place. Evidently, Jesus did not get that memo, because he, the language he uses in this chapter is incredibly strong. He condemns the false religious leaders of his day. And the further you go in the chapter, the more strong the language becomes. So put on your work boots and your hard hat, uh, because Jesus is going to be sharing some difficult things with us today. But let's pray before we start. Dear Father in heaven, thank you that you're not afraid to say the hard things. Lord, sometimes you've said them in my life. Because there were things that needed to be changed in my life. And Lord, uh, we all need your instruction. We need your rebuke. We need your counsel. We need your leadership, Lord. So today, I pray that you'll be the one teaching. And that you'll help us to have ears to hear you, Father. Lord, help us not to push these things away. Uh, Lord, help us to hear from you. And take heart. And follow you, Lord, passionately and joyfully. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, start with me. We're going to go through basically verse by verse through this chapter, Lord willing. Verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. All right, so he says they've seated themselves in the chair of Moses. We still use this expression in our day. If you go to a college or a university, someone will have like the chair of the psychology department. And it just simply means that there's someone there who has a position of authority. 
They are there as a teacher of others. And so here he's saying that these religious leaders have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They are claiming Moses' authority. They are using the word of God to teach others. But there's a problem with what they're doing. Actually, there are several problems. The first he mentions here immediately, he says they say things and they don't do them. So hypocrisy, and that's going to be a huge theme throughout here. But the other thing that they're doing is they are misinterpreting the scriptures that they're reading. And he doesn't say that specifically, but I want to point that out to you real quickly. John chapter 5. I'll read it to you if you want to turn there. Please do, but we'll be coming right back. John chapter 5. Here's what Jesus said to the Pharisees on another occasion. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So even though they had the Old Testament scriptures, they were not obeying them. They should have recognized the Messiah. And you and I have been over that again as in our journey through Matthew on multiple different occasions. They should have known who Jesus was, but they wanted to maintain their own position, which as you're going to see as we go through, was not a healthy position. So, so they're misinterpreting scriptures, and then when they teach scripture, they're not doing what it says. Very clear beginning uh, discussion of what false religion is. Those two things. Misinterpreting the scripture, or just hypocrisy where we read the scripture, but we don't do it. But go on with me into verse 4. He makes it even more clear. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. So religion, true religion, real religion, is not something that just happens in your head. It is something that changes you. It is something that comes out of your life. This is why I've told you what my dad said to me on several occasions. Dad said, Sam, when a young man truly becomes a Christian, the first ones to find out are his dog and his horse. And the reason is, is because it completely changes who you are. Or at least it should if it is real, if it is genuine religion. Go on with me to verse 5. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. A phylactery is a little leather box that has scripture verses inside of it. And so they would wear them on their forehead or on their arm. So Jesus is saying you're making them wider and wider and wider. And your purpose is so that people will see you. The same thing with the tassels. So they'll be seen. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by, by men. So they are doing the things that they're doing to be seen for personal recognition, for personal gain. Again, Jesus is saying this is false religion. This is not true religion. This is what you should be doing. He goes on in verse 8. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. 
Do not call anyone on earth your father, or one is your father, who, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So this is how we ought to be living. We ought to be walking in humility, not acquiring titles for ourselves, trying to position ourselves uh, up in some high way. Josh and I have been having a lot of fun. I love his work out here on the parking lot. He's threatening to put a name, you know, pastor on one of the spaces. I've told him, please do not do that. Uh, this, would, this would really not work well with this passage of Scripture. <laughs> Uh, but we are, we're not supposed to be living like that. How are we supposed to be living? Uh, we're supposed to be living for the success, and salvation, and growth, and advancement of others. Like the, the man who began Salvation Army. I've told you before, but he couldn't be there one year. So he sent them a message to all of his Salvation Army troops. This was back when the Salvation Army was all about the salvation of souls. And his message to them was one word, others. And that's what our lives are supposed to be. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. So in this next section, Jesus goes on to talk about eight woes. So I just want to make a couple of quick notes before we start reading it. He says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, seven times. Pretty strong language. One time he says, woe to you, blind guides. Why such strong language? You probably remember earlier in the book of Matthew, we were talking about when Jesus talked about stumbling blocks. He says, woe to that person who is a stumbling block. He said, if you are a stumbling block to others, you would be better off having a giant millstone hung around your neck and being thrown into the sea. What is a stumbling block? A stumbling block is someone who causes you to doubt your faith. Someone who causes you to doubt the goodness of God. To doubt the character of God. A stumbling block is someone who trips you up in your walk with your heavenly Father. And Jesus has very strong words about them. And basically, he's saying that's what these religious leaders are doing. As we go through these eight woes, that's what you'll notice. Let's go ahead and start looking at them one by one. Verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And that is so crystal clear. We know in just several short chapters, they are going to arrest this beautiful, loving, humble man who served everyone, have a mockery of a trial and put him to death. Instead of putting their faith in the Lord Jesus, so they are blocking the way to heaven in every way that they possibly can. You may remember earlier, the, the, the Jewish leader said, if anyone puts their faith in Christ, kick him out of the synagogue. 
So Jesus says, you're not entering and you're not allowing others to enter. Verse 14, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. So they're taking advantage of others. Devouring widows' houses probably is a reference to them just taking possessions from there. So they are trying to appear pious, but at the same time, taking things from others. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. A proselyte is like a convert, someone who'd be willing to listen to them, willing to follow them. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So they're doing all this work to find someone to follow them, but then they are training these people in pride and arrogance and hypocrisy. All things that you're going to see, the the more we go through this chapter, you're going to see Jesus is saying that this is what they're doing. Go on in verse 16. He says, woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. So here they are splitting hairs about technicalities so they can get out of doing what they promised to do. He continues to describe it in the next verse. Uh, Verse 18, wait a minute, verse 17, you fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Maybe you remember earlier Jesus said, listen, don't swear at all. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And and what are they doing? They are making up these little technicalities so that something that they said five years ago, they don't have to fulfill it. Because, oh yeah, I, I didn't swear by the altar. Or whatever they were saying. But going into verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Those are garden herbs, by the way. And have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So here they are focusing on tiny little details. When important, weighty Huge issues are in front of them that need to be addressed. 
they're, they're tithing their mint. You know, you go out to your garden and you get a thing of mint. Okay, I've got to make sure 10% of this goes to the temple, goes to the Lord. He says, you're doing that, but you are forgetting these giant things that you should be paying attention to. And notice the ones. I think it's fascinating what he mentions that they're neglecting. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. So just think about those for a moment. Justice is what's right. Mercy is what's kind. And faithfulness is doing what I promised to do. And when you really think about it, you know, like ask yourself the question, what's really important in life? Okay, when it comes to the end of my life, when everything is said and done, or when I'm standing for God himself, what's important? And as far as I can tell from the Bible, God's important and people are important. Because those are the eternal things. And all three of these weighty issues that Jesus mentions have to do with those things. Justice, what's right? It has to do with commending or correcting people. Mercy, what's kind, has to do with our relationship with people. Faithfulness, doing what I've promised, what I said I would do, has to do with my relationship with other people. So they're leaving all of those things out of their lives. And this is a huge, you know, focusing on tiny details and forgetting giant important issues is something that we all need to be careful of and be reminded of. Actually, I have a couple of copies with me of a little booklet that if you want a copy, I think I have four copies left. I've given these away in the past. But there's this little booklet called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And it'll change your life. Because what happens in so many of our lives is we get so busy with all these little details. We got this long list of things to do. You know, oh, here's my list for Saturday. We get so busy with all the details of life that we miss the big, important pieces of life like the Lord and others. So if you'd like a copy of the book, please come up front and grab one after. It's called Tyranny of the Urgent. It'll help you think through that in your own life. Just really, really an excellent book. But going with me into verse 25, here's a big one. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery, and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside also may be clean. And this one must have really stood out to him because he basically gives the same challenge again in the next two verses. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside... They are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Wow, what strong words. What strong words. 
Beware of false religion. We're going to talk about it again at the end, but I just want to remind you of the two big pieces of false religion. One is misinterpreting the Bible, and two is just hypocrisy. Just saying it, but not living it, is what Jesus is saying. Appear good, you look good on the outside, but inside, not so much. Go on to verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we'd been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. So here Jesus is saying that they find the prophets' tombs and they go and decorate them. And they go, ah, we want to honor these men who wrote our Old Testament. And if we had lived back then when our fathers did, we wouldn't have put them to death. And so Jesus says, you're testifying that you're the descendants of the people who put them to death. And friends, they're going to do the exact same thing. Jesus is going to actually basically tell them that in just a second. But we know they're going to crucify him in a few short days. Verse 32. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And Jesus' words were fulfilled in a few short years. The Holy Spirit came, those 12 disciples who had been following Jesus, now we know them as apostles, went everywhere teaching about the love of God. And salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did these men do? They had them arrested. They had them flogged. They had them stoned. They had homes taken away. Eventually, every single apostle, except for John, they couldn't seem to kill John. So they exiled him to the island of Patmos. Every single other apostle was put to death at their hands. It came true, just as Jesus said. And it's the result of false religion. A huge and very important warning for us. So now these next verses, Jesus turns the corner and we we get to see his heart. Such beautiful verses. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together 
the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You can almost hear Jesus' tears as he speaks those words. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. He didn't want them to be judged. If they, I'm here to tell you. I mean, we know from Paul himself, Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was a persecutor of the church, having people murdered. But he became a Christian. These very men that he's rebuking, if they would have turned to Christ, could have been forgiven. And that's his heart here, dear friends. That's his heart here. And I just cannot help but mention, and I know that I could be stepping on toes in doing this, but uh, there's a topic in the Bible that I personally feel like is being misinterpreted. Uh, and, and some people believe in, I believe what you would call an extreme case of predestination. Like a five-point Calvinist. Basically, I don't have time to go into all the five points of Calvinism. But let me just explain the extreme position to you. They would say that Every person under, born under Adam's race is so, so completely dead that they can never respond to God on their own. The only way they can respond to God is if He touches them, if He enables them. That's what the extreme position says. And I don't think that can be true. Very simply from many verses in the Bible like this. Jesus very clearly says, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are unwilling. There are other places in the Bible where it says Jesus wept. Friends, I just ask, why did he cry? If God so detailedly controls and predestines every single decision of life so that He ends up ultimately choosing who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, if He really does that, why did He cry? He's in control. I think it makes no sense. I think it's a misinterpretation of the Bible. Yes, God predestines. But yes, we have to choose Him. We have to choose Him. You have free will. It is your decision. I, I see it, I know this is not a perfect analogy, but I see it like a guy who falls in love with a beautiful girl. And he goes, oh, I love that girl. I want to spend the rest of my life with that girl. And so one day he goes to her and he gets down on his knees and he says, Sweetheart, will you marry me? There's some risk involved. 
She could say no. She has to choose him too. She has to say, yes, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And so it is with us. God is calling. You are responsible. You have to choose him. You have to be willing to leave behind the temptations of the world. Satan came to Jesus and he said, listen, I'll give you all this. Just fall down and worship me. It's all yours. Everything you can see. He took him up on this huge mountain where he could see all the kings of the world. I'll give it to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. I want no parts of it. Don't love the world. Love him first. He'll give you the world. He'll give you so much. I mean, you're going to probably have trials and tribulations as a Christian too. But he, he gives so much more than the world gives. So I just have to say, I cannot go with this uh, hyper-Calvinist position, hyper-predestination position, because I believe we have to choose. I believe the Bible very clearly teaches it. But I would like you, going back to the idea of false religion, I'd like to read together several more things with you this morning. Uh, the first is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and then I have something I'm going to read to you from an, a pastor from ages ago. Talking about false religion. God warning us about it. Don't let it get a grip in your life. 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'll start in verse 1. Paul's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Almost same challenge Jesus gave to those crowds and his disciples. He was strongly warning them about these religious leaders. Avoid such men as these. They're holding to a form of godliness. They look religious on the outside, but it hasn't transformed their life. It's false religion. So this guy summarizes it well. I know we've been talking about it all morning, but I just want to read you what he said. This is Soren Kierkegaard. Maybe you've heard of him. He's from the 19th century, a very strong Christian. Here's what he said. He identified two kinds of religion. He simply called them religion A and religion B. Simple enough, right? He says the first is faith in name only. It's the practice of attending church without genuine faith in the living Lord. Religion B, on the other hand, is a life-transforming, destiny-changing experience. 
It's a definite commitment to the crucified and risen Savior, which establishes an ongoing personal relationship between a forgiven sinner and a gracious God. I love those words. That's what God wants to establish with every single one of us. Please pray together with me. Lord God in heaven, we just are so privileged to have your word, hold it in our hands, read it every day, commit it to memory, meditate on it. Lord, make it part of our lives. Thank you for these warnings. Lord, help us to take them to heart. Lord, help each of us, help me, Lord, to not just rush by these, this chapter or these things, but Lord, help me to take them seriously. Lord, to be a new person by the grace of God, by the work of God in my own life, Lord, would you continue your work in me. Lord, I pray for our church family. First of all, I pray for anyone who's here today or anyone who may be listening online that doesn't know you personally as their own Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that they'll make that decision today, call out to you and ask for a new heart, a new life, forgiveness of sins. Lord, every person who's listening who is a Christian, I pray that you will help us to, to press forward, to move ahead in our walk with you. In Christ's name I ask it. Amen.